millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week with my co-host Stephen Bush, we talk about the Labour reshuffle, part two, and David Cameron's legacy. George joins us on the line from Westminster to talk about who might be the next Labour leader. And finally, Imad Ahmed joins us to talk about the games that restore our faith in video gaming. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Well, it's been quite a quiet week for politics, I would say, Stephen, comparatively to reshuffle Geddon. But nonetheless, the Labour Party still is not, it's not entirely a happy ship, is it? There was another resignation this week. Yes, um, Catherine, Catherine McKinnell uh, stepped down as attorney, shadow attorney general, uh, partly to spend more time with her family, but also she said because she was concerned about the negative path that Labour was taking under Jeremy Corbyn. So that uh, triggered a philosophical argument about whether or not this was a continuation of the reshuffle or a new reshuffle. Um, George thought it was a new reshuffle. I thought it... No, George thought it was an old reshuffle. I thought it was a new reshuffle. An epilogue to the last reshuffle, isn't Um, it? We did a little straw poll on the internet and it turns out that I am in an extreme minority. I maintain that a resignation which starts another reshuffle. Well, that's the beginning of the reshuffle. That's not... Yeah, I I think probably that there are maybe like six or seven people who care about this and and at least one-sixth of those people are in this room. So we'll we'll move swiftly on. But um, one of the things that is interesting is that the... I mean, the dust is now settling on that reshuffle and lots of people are kind of thinking, well, actually, Jeremy Corbyn played that better than we thought because actually Hillary Benn was the last battle. That was Syria. Emily Thornbury and Trident, that's the next battle, right? Yeah, the next fight will be over the the nuclear deterrent, which is obviously totemic within the Labour Party. It's it, it you know, it, it it has a a significance well beyond its actual military or tactical value within Labour circles, both both for and against. Of course it opens up a fight which for him is much less asymmetrical. You know, against MPs he has a huge mandate from members and there's very little ways to get rid of him. Against trade union leaders, two of uh, Labour's largest affiliated unions, the uh, GMB and, and Unite, both have members whose jobs are directly linked to Trident. Len McCluskey will this week go, you know, don't you try and force this through. Although, of course, they have electorates too, uh, and so they have to be have half an eye on those. So the politics of it are more fraught. But yeah, he's in a stronger position than I think lots of people believed. 
One thing I was surprised about, pleasantly surprised, I have to say, is that last week's magazine, we had a piece by um, Joe Haynes, who used to be Harold Wilson's press secretary. And one of the things that he floated was this idea that Labour MPs had their own mandate created by, you know, 9.3 million people voting for them, which, you know, against the 250,000 people who voted from Jeremy Corbyn is a, is a different kind of, of mandate. Anyway, it concluded with this, I thought at the time, kind of slightly crazy idea that the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, could elect one leader and then there could be another leader kind of for the membership. But I was surprised. We had a, a letter going in the magazine that's out today saying from Frank Fields saying that actually the, these are two very different jobs. Like Almost this kind of like you want to have a president and a prime minister within your own party. You want to have a kind of head of state and you also want to have somebody who is, is leader of the party. I wonder how much of that is just a, oh God, let's think of any way we could get rid of him and how much of that is something that is a genuinely held principle among Labour MPs. I think it's a, a, oh God, there must be some way shot of here. I mean, partly members don't want to elect someone to be their representative who's roundly ignored by MPs. They they they, they elected Corbyn to, to lead the Labour Party. I think it's, in some ways, the problem for Labour is you have, on the one hand, Jeremy Corbyn, who, you know, speaking candidly, I think there is very little chance he will become Prime Minister. And you look at him and you go, how could Labour have chosen this guy? Until you look at the people who are trying to oppose him and you're like, oh, right, suddenly this all makes a, a sort of sense. Because Labour members didn't don't want him just to be there so they can feel good about themselves. They think he's their, their best possible mm. shot. Whether they're right or wrong is, is entirely irrelevant. I think there was a very good piece uh, that, uh, on someone's blog, which I'm trying to, to nick for the staggers at the moment, which I think sums up what Labour MPs should be saying. And they said, well, look, Jeremy Corbyn has a mandate, undeniably so. David Cameron has a mandate, but I think David Cameron's mandate is harmful for the country, and as long as he's in office, the chances of a government of the kind they want are smaller. Most Labour MPs would be better off arguing than actually they think that, yes, Jeremy Corbyn has a mandate, he undoubtedly does, but as long as he's Labour leader, the chances of a government of the kind they want are vanishingly small. You know, it's not in the nature of political parties to pack yourself up between elections and go, oh, well, the other guy has a mandate. Um, this kind of falling around... I mean, I think it feels like Frank Field just lives now to create trouble with all of his public utterances. But, but then I think, well, there's quite... A, I mean, I, could, we, I was on the Sunday Politics this weekend and David Davis was on there and I thought that's very much the function that he performs for the Tory party. He was out talking about Europe, but on things like you know civil liberties as well. I don't think... I mean, I, I, I'm pro-backbenchers who... I mean, obviously, as a journalist, I'm definitely pro-backbenchers who say interesting and provocative things. I guess if I were a party leader or someone in the leader's office, I would think very differently about it. But um, one of the things I people kind of kept saying was, why aren't you talking more about the Tory splits on Europe? And I thought that was a really interesting point. And the problem about it was that the honest answer was, well, they haven't happened yet. Like, we're all waiting for them. We all sort of expect them. But at the moment, it's more low-grade grumbling than it is, you know, open knives being slipped into the back by the medium of kind of briefings to Sunday papers. That brings me to the thesis about whether or not that split will actually be that bad. It, I think that's that's one of the two kind of unknown, well, maybe known unknowns about the next year is how big will the Tory split in Europe be? And these warnings from George Osborne about how bad the economic outlook are, are they the prelude to him going, and I'm the one who's fixed it? Or are they the prelude to him going, and that's why you need to give us another five years because we still haven't fixed it? Yeah, I mean, I think that... So in 2020, the Conservatives will not have hit their deficit reduction targets because they're fictional. Yeah, they, you know, they're, yeah. they are against all sort of economic sense and they are not achievable politically or economically. So they will be in this weird position of going, the plan is working, but it hasn't happened yet. 
they'll need some kind of of, of line. There probably will be some kind of global turmoil. So it's a combination of getting his ducks in a row for 2020 and about getting his excuses in ready because because he's managed the public finances so badly, there isn't the room for a massive spending splurge of the kind that Brown and Darling embarked upon in the last recession. Interest rates are already very low. So there are there are lots of sort of tactical reasons for him to, to say all of those things. Of course, I mean, I'm I don't think it was helpful that Gordon Brown said they'd abolished boom and bust, but I don't think that if your house gets repossessed, I don't think you care if a politician said something hubristic 10 years ago. I think that's the, the, the mileage on the, and the last Labour government did blah, blah, and Brown sold all the gold. Like Every year that just fades slightly more from memory, particularly when Ed Balls is gone, when Yvette Cooper is now taking a you know backbench role talking about migrants. It's not like there are big figures. You know, Alistair Darling has gone, still sort of haunting around. There's not even Ed Miliband. You know, One of the things we might expect from the reshuffle was that he might come back and that's not happened so I think that that begins to lose its its sort of saliency as an, an attack line really um the one thing I just want to quickly touch on before we go is is the is, is sort of Cameron's legacy it seems strange that he's moved into so he gave a big speech and you know he's been floating this idea about he's got tuppence to redo some tower blocks and stuff like that and the big society is kind of resurrected and zombie like staggering back towards us again why on earth is he talking about his legacy and you know and and these sort of briefings going out when he's it's six months into his second term? Well, I think that although Number Ten hopes and believes it can pull off a yes a remain vote in the in our referendum, there's an expectation that if we were to leave the European Union, he would have to go soon soon afterwards. And although they believe that the splits will not be as bad as some in Labour hope. Uh, if they are, then he may have to go early too. He he doesn't want to go down in history as someone who, who attempted to cut the deficit, won a couple of referendums and then left. So it, it's for him, it is about getting the legacy stuff in early. So, I mean, there are two arguments about Cameron and the big society. Did he ever believe it? Did he not? My instinct is he probably does because he keeps returning to it. It's just he doesn't believe in it enough. Well, I thought Raph um, this morning, our old colleague Raph Alberi, now a commentator for The Guardian, had a good... He compared him to Henry IV. So the play, the Shakespearean plays start with him saying he's going to have this crusade to the Holy Land. But it always keeps getting put off because there's other things. There's warring nobles, there's whatever. But, you know, it doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in it. It's just that he doesn't... He doesn't believe in it to the extent that he's willing to junk other things. In and I think that's probably fair of Cameron. You know, he would like to have done that, but there was always something that was more pressing first. And therefore, yeah, you start to then return to it because you want to tie up your, your reign with a little bow that had and, and give it a theme rather than, you know, he was in charge when some stuff happened. It's not a very com- kind of compelling story to tell, is it? But um, I guess we'll probably have to wrap up for now. But well, we'll hear more from George down the line in a minute. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time for a segment I like to call Curious George, or rather George coming to us live on the line from the lobby. Hi, Helen. George, tell us what's happening this week. Yes, so in this week's this week's magazine, actually, we have a, a column by Dan Jarvis, uh, one of the favourites to be the next Labour leader, which has got quite a lot of attention. He calls in it for the party 
uh, to publish the official inquiry into why Labour lost, which which has yet to emerge, and also opposes um, making policy by an, through an online ballot of members, in this case in relation to Trident, which of course is a, probably the most divisive issue in Labour, and of course is one that Jarvis, as, as, as a former paratrooper, has, has strong opinions on. And he's not the first one to kind of subtly manoeuvre, is he? Because you spoke to Owen Smith, who I think probably doesn't have a great deal of name recognition, but is also kind of lightly scouting out his territory. Tell us a bit more about him. Yes, yeah, so Owen Smith, who was appointed as the Shadow Work and Pensions Secretary in Jeremy Corbyn's first reshuffle, having served as Shadow Wales Secretary under Ed Miliband, has been spoken of for a while by Labour insiders as a potential soft left candidate in a, in a future leadership election. Um, he's someone who supported Andy Burnham, but who quickly decided to serve under, under Jeremy Corbyn and avoided sort of prominent attacks or criticisms on him during the campaign and afterwards. So he's seen as a, as a as quite a unifying figure. But as you say, his profile hasn't been very high. And he told me when I asked him, would you like to be Labour leader? You gave me an unusually honest and frank answer and said, look, I think if you're in this game, um, if you don't want to be leader, then um, you might it, it sort of you might question whether you're in in, in the right field but um otherwise you're just fibbing and he said it, of course it would be a huge honor and, and privilege to to do the job and um he's had quite a i understand quite a positive reaction to it i i like politicians who just answer a, a question honestly with well obviously i think jess phillips did something rather the same before christmas but that mirrors what's happening in the tory party too isn't it because particularly the europe debate is a big opportunity and danger for theresa may and boris johnson which way, you know, do they want to be the leader of, of the outers within the cabinet? We had Chris Grayling. I don't think anyone's idea of a kind of, you know, game changer in the in the Europe debate. Do you think that one of them will decide that they want to lead the out campaign as, you know, to put themselves in opposition perhaps to George Osborne in the race for the next Tory leader? At the moment, I think it's looking likely that they'll both side with in, actually, because I think the sense is that in has, has the advantage at the moment. I don't think either of them want to be on the losing side, but... They're both clearly still making their minds up. Um, although Boris Johnson was reported by The Express this week to have told Conservative MPs shortly before Christmas, the problem is that I'm, I'm not an outer, I'm not an outer. And so that suggests that if he does come out for, for Brexit, then it will be for reasons of calculation rather than conviction. Um, Boris, Boris is someone who actually generally throughout his career, has been far more pro-European than, than most assume. Yeah, I was talking to a Tory MP who said, um, well, of course, Liam Fox, who, who you might remember from former Cabinet Minister fame, had a big party and, uh, and Boris came in. You know, normally he just sort of swings by these things, but he actually stayed for a, for a really long time. So he's clearly got it in his mind that he needs to do a, a charm offence, whichever way, whichever way he ends up falling. Um, that's all for now, but thank you very much from George Danaline from The Lobby. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey. 
we're going to talk about video games, a subject very close to my heart. And and yours too, Stephen. I think um, you play a little bit of Football Manager, also known as Crack, basically. And uh, Imad Ahmed, who is our Welcome Scholar, joins us as well. Imad, I wanted to start with a, a game that's out this week, which has been awaited for a really long time. It's called That Dragon Cancer. It's a story of a, um, a couple called Ryan and Amy Green who lost their son to childhood cancer. Mm. And they've made a game that incorporates audio recordings of his voice. They funded it quite innovatively through um, crowdfunding, didn't they? And you could get your kind of handprints and a message from yeah, someone that you'd the, loved. Yeah, they also got some investors as well. He, he, I mean, they put all their money, all their savings into this. Uh, at one point in an interview that they, they gave with their replay all, um, they said that they wanted to, you know, give the best memories, you know, they could of Joel and so they wanted to put everything they could including all the money they had. Well you had special dispensation to be out of the office and uh, and play this and I, I'm really interested to know, I, well okay here's a good question, did it make you cry because a lot of the reviews have focused on the fact that this is one of the first video games that you could say this actually is such an emotional experience that it would make you cry? Um, personally yes, it's just that I physically cannot cry, I think that's the only limitation but yes yeah, so for the argument's sake I would say yes it did. So it made you very sad but you're, yes. not, you're not a crier? Yeah I'm not a crier but yes I think other people have said they have cried uh, and you know these are mostly middle-aged game reviewers, males you know who, who haven't really cried I'm, I'm assuming uh, with most of the games they've played, such as Fallout 4 and... and not other. even when Aerith died? No. <laughs> no. I'm trying to think whether or not I have. I mean, the, the closest I can think of is the game um, Heavy Rain, which was made by Quantic Dream. It was a PlayStation game a couple of years ago. And that was one of the first... There was a genre at the time. I guess it was a, a wave called like dad games. And the theory was that games developers had now got to the bit where instead of you know, fixating on you know saving attractive women or chatting up attractive women mm-hmm. in various forms, they were now quite interested in their relationship with their own children. And Heavy Rain begins with you losing your son uh, in a crowded shopping mall, like he wanders off holding a red balloon, you can just see the red balloon, and it captures that feeling you have when you care for small children of like, oh my god, I'm in charge of basically, you know, some a, an idiot that will happily jump off something or walk in front of a car, and that constant tension that you you feel, and then it's quick cuts to what happens after after that, where with a kind of grim life of single fatherdom, and that that's the most emotionally engaged that I think I've ever been by a game. I don't know, Stephen, what what, get, what what game actually got to you? I mean, so I'm a crier. I yeah. cry in films, novels, and, and games. So I think games which have made me cry, um, Final Fantasy X, the ending of Final Fantasy X. You... Let's assume for the sake of argument that I haven't played any Final Fantasies. I mean, just a, just, um, you know, just a, let's, a rhetorical so device, if you will. I was spoiler alert, but the game's a decade old, so, you know. Um, there's, there's a bit at the end when the main character is fading away and she try and and the other main character tries to, to, to run in him and tug him and she, she runs right through him and it's, it's just very painful and very sad. Um, yeah, I think both, yeah, Final Fantasy's kind of taken a turn for the worse, but both Final Fantasy's 9 and 10 had some really sort of heart-rending, emotionally involving moments. Heavy Rain, The Last Express, which was a point-and-click game, which occurs in real time and is now on the iPad. Uh, I found that very affecting. Ico. Ico. Um, so the the premise of you always having to hold the hand of uh, yeah. of the girl was, I think that was that, that kind of thing of giving you an emotional connection to someone. One of the games that I actually felt a genuine emotional connection with was 80 Days, which was a little um, iOS game that was out last year, which was basically a kind of feminist post-colonialist retelling of um, Phineas Fogg's journey, which I know probably sounds the most new statesman thing you've ever heard, but was genuinely enjoyable and it kind of had a sense of, of exploration about it that I, I really loved. And it was just, it had a great little art style and it had funny characters that you really kind of 
yeah, you felt no, but but I just I, I I'm really interested in this email because I have I am I'm and I don't know whether or not it's my age. I don't you know it's like that thing where like journalists about my age write a piece about how they've left London and London's over, and it turns out it's just because they don't want to live in a tiny flat and mm. go to raves anymore. They want to you know eat croissants by the seafront. I wonder if this is my problem. This is why I wonder if I'm falling out of games because I'm I'm moving I'm aging out of them, or whether or not last year's games were a bit sequely. Yeah, there are too many sequels, I think. Uh, I purposely went ahead and chose games that were very original for my best of year list. And I think there are ways in which original stories can be told through games. I think there is, um, yes, maybe a demographic shift now that many people who used to play old older consoles are now developers and maybe feeding in their own experiences of fatherhood. Um, well, let's say parented, but mostly fatherhood. But it, it really was dad games because it was Bioshock Infinite, which was very much your in the role of a father. Um, the Last of Us, which is all about you know this kind of sim, you know father-like bond. They were they weren't. I can't think of a game where you play a mum. I'd be really interested if any of our listeners. Uh, it depends if you play as a woman in Fallout Four. That's true. That um, is true. Actually, yeah, I do play as a as a very kick-ass woman in, in, in Fallout Four. So that's. But there's nothing. I don't know. There's nothing because that's written as a gender-neutral character. I guess it's not. It's not a specific experience in the same way. I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting point about those like Mass Effect, where you can choose to be a player as a male or a female. What does that do? Does that make it? You know, do, do, does it does it take something away from not writing a specific experience? I, I mean, I think the, the difference. I think with Fallout, the, the plot is quite sparse. Whereas, I mean, I think. I'm always surprised when people tell me they've only ever played Mass Effect as a man because it's not as satisfying. A... But also you get the much better voice actor. Yeah. I mean, you get the internationally renowned voice actor if you play a woman. And yet, yeah, seven out of ten players played as a man. It's just, I can't believe it. I don't, I don't think I would have played the second one if I'd been playing. But I started it with the man, put it down. A friend of mine said, oh, try again with the woman. Because I was just like, oh, it's this stereotypical kind of, I'm a spaceman and I'm angry. <laughs> um and then with the woman, it's just somehow much better. I think that I, I think I probably cried at the end of Mass Effect Three. I mean, because Mass Effect Three was an odd example of one where the game experience was awful. The end of the plot was quite disappointing, but because because it was a sequel, it had already acquired quite a lot of emotional weight. Yeah, I I, I haven't cried at any Mass Effect. I like them. I actually I as I, in the second one, I had a lot more time for Garrus. You know, your wasp wasted roguish. That's how I romanced in the second one. I was Liara in the first one, Garrus in the second one. How could you not have been sad if you remember Garrison and then you had in the the third bit when she's like, and he's like, you know, and he's like, you know, if I die, and she's like, you know, if I die, you know, like you're never alone. That yeah. bit choked me up. That was yeah, like, but that's why you play it on easy so you make sure that everyone survives. Yeah, you play for the story. But the problem with Mass Effect was it was a great story. It was this whole Star Wars equivalent in the first game, but then it slowly became an action series, unfortunately. I think that's why it did slowly drift off. And like you said, I think by the third game, people just gave up. So let's be, let's be, let's be edutainment. Let's give some recommendations of good games that do something a bit different, that give you hope about video games as a genre. I think what you're just talking about, you know, just gender, I think Life is Strange is a perfect example. You know, you play as an 18 year old girl. And I think when I was playing it, not, not, not even for a second. I think, oh, this is unusual. I'm, I'm, I need to think differently in my interactions because it is a, basically like an interactive movie, similar to Heavy Rain. Uh, I think that's a perfect example of how games have shifted and have come along to cater for for, for everyone, not just the 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 uh, stereotypical 
teenage male. Gamer bro. Yeah, yeah. I think I would pick uh, her story, which I played over Christmas, which is a very, I think it's like about a fiver on, on Steam. And it is just a series of police interview tapes. And they've cut out the interview and it's only the, the woman answering. And the way that you do it is you have to try and solve what you think has happened by typing in search terms into a box and then it will return the clips of her that, that are called from that. And from that you have to piece together a story. And it's really lo-fi. I mean, I, you know, you could have made it with a video camera and, and relatively you know, low-level coding knowledge, but the thought that's gone into how do I make a patchwork of a story and, and so that, you know, you do this simple thing that everybody does probably, you know, several times a day, which is type a word into a search box, and how do you turn that into a an, an active experience where you're learning and you're piecing together stories? And also, it, it, it I think it's... Um, I was I reviewed it with Saturday Review and Satnam Sanghera compared it to B.S. Johnson's The Unfortunates, which is a, famously this book in a box... And it had that same feeling of how you're, you can feel, like almost feel your brain struggling to create a linear story out of fragments. And that's quite a satisfying process, I thought. Stephen, have you played anything that's actually made you, given you hope for, for video games? And don't say Championship Manager. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the dispiriting thing is I realise how much, because I, I don't have a new console yet, then the game I've been replaying and enjoying a great deal is Fallout New Vegas, mm. um, which I think is probably my favourite of the Fallouts. Um, but I think, weirdly, despite the fact that I think there is a big problem with AAA gaming and the fact that the bar to new entrants is so hard that you effectively have a dysfunctional market where there's no innovation. But I, I did think Fallout 4 was quite an exciting step forward in terms of the capabilities of an open world game. It did look and, a lot better, didn't yeah. it? I mean, the, the, you didn't have that weird thing where people fix you with their kind of like dead-eyed gaze and just mm. stare directly at you and mouth lines of dialogue. There had to, there was some animation. But it was one of those things, I don't know if you felt, have you played Skyrim? Yeah. I, I sort of felt like I was enjoying that in spite of the game. All the, the, bit, the bits of it I enjoyed were just having a walk, largely. I remember a great bit in Skyrim where I just found a lovely waterfall. It was really nice. Obviously, then I immediately got killed by like a bear or something five minutes later. Um, Emad, so Life is Strange is available on which platforms? Uh, Xbox 360, Xbone, PS3, PS4 and PC. Yes, I did just say that. You did say Xbone. Okay, that happened. Um, And for our listeners this week, if you've got recommendations for off the beaten track games, we are very much open. We have, yeah, we have. We can't spend all day talking about the Labour reshuffle. We have to have some fun too. Um, So do tweet us um, with, with your suggestions. Now it's time for Stephen Bush's joke of the week. How many Conservative MPs does it take to change a light bulb? All of them. George Osborne to screw it up, and all of the others to tell him what a good job he's doing in the House of Commons. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork, and our music is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.